December 16th, 2000 started out very early for Mike Williams. He got up early before dawn, loaded up his cooler with snacks, packed up his truck, hitched his boat, and drove out to Lake Seminole from his home in Tallahassee so that he could go duck hunting in the wee hours of the morning. The reason Mike decided to go so early is because December 16th had a special significance. December 16th, 2000 was the day that he and his wife, Denise, were going to celebrate their sixth anniversary, wedding anniversary. So they had plans later that evening. Mike kissed Denise as she slept and went out just as he would any other morning when he went duck hunting. The problem is, is that was the last time anybody would see Mike Williams alive. What follows is the story of a very strange disappearance and subsequent, subsequently the events that led to find out that Mike Williams was not only missing, but he had been murdered. A story of betrayal, a story, quite frankly, that is stranger than fiction. You are now listening to Murder V Wrote. I'm your host, V. Now that Mike was missing, Denise became increasingly concerned around noon when she realized that Mike hadn't returned from his duck trip to Lake Seminole. Mike called her father and told him that Mike hadn't returned, and Brian Winchester, who was Mike's best friend, drove down with his father to the areas of the lake where they knew Mike would frequently duck hunt. They found his 1994 Ford Bronco near a remote boat launch in Jackson County on the Florida side. After the investigators with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission were called, a search began, but soon had to be called off once the storm blew in. The initial search was handled by the FFWCC. Since it had been reported to them as a missing hunter, the agency handled the case that way, focusing on a search and rescue or recovery. We didn't have a lot to go on, except there was an empty boat and the guy didn't show up, one of the agency's officers recalled later after his retirement. Quote, there was nothing there that had from the scene suggested foul play at all, end quote. Deputies from Jackson County Sheriff's Office were present, but primarily worked in a support capacity. Searchers focused on the 10 acres of the lake surrounding the cove where William's truck had been parked. His boat was soon found roughly 220 feet from the ramp by a helicopter pilot who initially assumed it was a boat that was being used in the search. After retrieving the boat, investigators found William's shotgun still in its case, but no sign of Mike himself. The cove is locally believed to have been an orchard before the Chattahoochee and Flint Rivers and Spring Creek were dammed to create Lake Seminole. It took its name Stump Field from the many remaining stumps that protruded above and below the water level, requiring careful handling of any powerboat in the area. Searchers thus assumed that Williams had hit a stump with his boat, fallen out and sunk into the waters approximately eight to 12 feet deep when his waders filled and then drowned when he was unable to extricate himself. So for those of you that are not duck hunters or don't hunt or use a fishing boat, what waders are essentially are basically these waterproof, I guess the best way to describe them is like, Oh, like 
suspended like galoshes basically that you put on. So they're rubber. And so it's like um, one whole piece. So the boot is like rain boot material attached to additional like poncho rain material that is the pants all the way up to like right like above your waist chest area stomach area and then you put and then you put them on your shoulders with suspenders so basically this is so that if you are outside the boat or whatever you're not getting wet you can be kind of up basically waist deep in the water and not get wet with these waders on so essentially what you'll see sometimes um, on people that uh, go fly fishing. So it's the same type of idea. And so what happens is that because these aren't singular pieces, like say pants and boots, if you are to fall or were to fall out of your boat with the waders on, then the water is going to rush into them and, and hold in there, much like if you were to have like an anchor tied around you. So if he was not unable to get his his coat or whatever he had on over the waders off, if he was incapacitated in some way, then the water would fill them and essentially suck him down. So this is not necessarily a bad theory about what happened. So essentially, that's what the law enforcement thought was the initial thing that had happened. And so they assumed that if he drowned, his body would eventually float to the surface, making it easier to discover. So investigators assured his family that his body would likely surface, like most other drowning victims, within three to seven days, or perhaps slightly longer due to the cold front that had moved in after the first night's storm. But no body was ever found. Ten days into the search, a camouflage pattern hunting hat was found, but it could not be connected to, to Mike. So efforts continued until the search was called off in early February. Keep in mind that Mike went missing December 16th and it would had gotten kind of wintry or they had a cold front because it's Florida. So it's not like wintry, but winter enough, right? Uh, so basically this search for him went on for almost two months and they came up empty. But she didn't seem interested in the continued search for Mike at all. In fact, she seemed completely kind of unbothered by it. You know, sad that her husband was missing, but not in a hurry or really wanting them to continue to search for him like you would assume someone would. At that time, the case was still open and the report that was issued in late February said, quote, nothing in investigative or search and rescue efforts has produced any definitive evidence of a boating accident or a fatality as of this date. And that's what the report said um, at that point. So let's go back a little and talk a bit about uh, Mike Williams, as we said his name was. So. Mike's full name, I said before, is Jerry Michael Williams, and he was known to his family and friends as Michael or Mike. He grew up in Bradfordville, which is north of Tallahassee, and his dad was a Greyhound bus driver, and um, his mom was a daycare provider, and they raised him and his one older brother, Nick, in a double wide, tra a double wide trailer. And instead of building a house, his parents saved their money for, so both the boys who helped make ends meet by working nights at supermarkets could attend North Florida Christian High School. Uh, and there Mike excelled. He was um, on the student council president. He was played football and he was active in key club. Uh, and at the age of 15, he began duck hunting as a hobby. And that's also how he met his fellow student, Denise Merrill. So Denise Merrill, maiden name, would later become his wife. 
And after, so after North Florida Christian High School, Mike attended Florida State University, where he majored in political science and urban planning. And before graduation, he was hired by the Ketchum Appraisal Group as a property appraiser. He distinguished himself as, quote, the hardest working man I ever saw, according to the company's owner. He married Denise in 1994, and he would often go home for dinner and then return to work after she and later his daughter went to bed and sometimes went into work after going duck hunting in the morning. According to his mother, Mike was making $200,000 annually by the time of his appearance, a uh, disappearance, goodness. And he and Denise had bought a home in a small upscale division on the east side of the city. So by all accounts, Mike was doing well. He, you know, had married his high school sweetheart. He had his daughter. He was super excited about life. You know, he had a great job. He had good friends. In 1999, his daughter was born. Coworker said that he was super devoted to her and she was just the light of his life. But that following year in 2000, Mike's own father died. And midway through the year, the couple decided just because they were kind of facing that bit of mortality with his dad, Mike decided it'd be a good idea if they bought a, a life insurance policy. Their childhood friend, Brian Winchester, who I mentioned earlier, who was a part of the search for Mike because they uh, had grown up together and went to school together. And quite frequently, Brian and his wife and Denise and Mike would all hang out together. They all knew each other from high school and they were as thick as thieves by all accounts. They hung out together. They went to concerts together. They did things as a foursome, vacations, trips. Uh, they were just, you know, bona fide, you know, couples hanging out and, you know, everything looked as it should be on the surface. So Brian was an insurance salesman. And so he sold the couple their million dollar life insurance. Uh, later that year, uh, Mike told his mother, whom he had been consoling, considering the death of his father, that he would like to have take um, that he would like to have $50,000 to take the next year off. Two days before his disappearance, Mike and Denise told his mother, as well as his brother Nick, that they were planning to have another child soon. In 2001, she said they were planning to go on a cruise in Hawaii that spring, and later that year, he was supposed to travel to work for Jamaica. I say all this to say, it seemed as if Mike, again, had his ducks in a row, his life in order. He had things that he wanted to do. Very often in missing persons cases, if there's some type of suspected accident, or if they think the person may, or the signs don't initially point to foul play or an accident, and the person is just missing, very often what the police will say is, well, they're a grown adult. They can go missing if they want to, right? So unless you have defrauded people or done something illegal and now faked your own death, frankly, there's nothing, there's no law or anything illegal about you deciding that you just want to walk away from the life that you have and start a completely new one. And we've talked about this on the show before, but I will say that over the course of, of true crime and, and reading court documents and reviewing and researching cases and, and reading novels, well, not, well, you know, nonfiction, of course, but over the course of my research and, and doing things involving true crime, what I've come across is that very few people actually just 
pick up and walk away from their life. It does happen. I'm not going to say people don't do that. Very often what you see is people do fall out of contact with family members. And very often when that happens, there is some type of, of drug problem or some type of fallout or prostitution, uh, sex work, not prostitution. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that. The correct term is sex workers. I'm so sorry. So you see drug use and sex work um, or some type of mental illness or um, homelessness that sometimes contributes or triggers this idea that the person has disappeared. When in reality, they have not disappeared. They just may not be in the mental capacity or in a space where they want to contact their family. So we do see that happen, but very rarely do we see people who are not experiencing any of those things just walk away from their life with no explanation and don't tell anything, tell anybody anything and just leave their their spouse and their child and their family, especially when they've made extensive plans. When you do see people walk away from lives like that, they do try to tie up loose ends or not necessarily leave anything behind that would trace them, trace anybody back to them, but certainly not in this way, right? Like it, it would be very strange if someone who is a expert, we would say expert level duck hunter to go missing and his boat and his car be found, but then his body never come up. So that implies that maybe he did not drown, but certainly that seems a strange way to decide you're going to go off and start another life to, to basically stage a boating accident, right? Um, which I'm not going to say it doesn't happen. I'm just saying it seems like a very odd way to go. So initially, most investigators thought that, you know, if Mike had drowned after accidentally falling off this boat, his body would be only one of 80 known deaths in the lake that would never have been found. This is, again, why I think sometimes people think that people fake their own deaths or walk away, because certainly that is a very small number considering. Yeah, so in the grand scheme of the entire time that Lake Seminole has existed and people have died from drowning, they've only not found bodies in 80 of those cases. The head of a private research firm that supplemented official efforts near the search offered a possible explanation for this. He says, quote, with the wildlife around, I would guess that the alligators have dismembered and have stored the remains in a location that we would not be able to find, end quote. He wrote in his report. Early searches had reported seeing many of them, and some officials were willing to accept the possibility. Quote, everyone knows the lake is full of alligators, said the FFWCC's David Arnett. You look for other answers, so because why hasn't the body appeared? Again, we'll take a pause here. When we talk about um, disposal of remains when it comes to victims of homicides, what happens, the longer you are out and exposed to the elements, the more likely it is that the animals or creatures in that area will start to predate on the remains and use it as a food source. And this can happen in instances as gruesome as it is for people that have uh, in their homes and they die and no one finds them for quite a bit of times. So you, you sometimes see where the family pet has started to eat away at them because they no longer have a food source. Traffic like woods where you get um, woodland creatures, places where you get bears, coyotes, anything essentially that would be carnivorous, um, as well as insect life that starts to grow on and feed on human flesh. So this is not uncommon. So in this case, we're talking about a lake area, marshy area. So alligators are common to the area. It is Florida. So this again, does not seem out of the realm of possibility. Then when you are 
they're looking for an explanation for a death or for someone missing, this is very plausible because if he fell in the lake and the ideas and, and his body should have surfaced by now, why are we not fine? Two men with the bright orange life jackets on an airboat in the water with abundant plant growth visible said it was suggested that maybe William's body could have been caught in the lake's dense underwater hydrilla beds. It was suggested maybe his body had gotten entangled in one of these beds of this dense foliage beneath the lake surface, surface and then was found by the alligators later when the turtles and catfish finished what they had with bodies that end up in lakes. You very often will have small pieces missing and that's because your smaller animals like fish and turtles will begin the predation and then if you have larger animals that are carnivorous they may start to eat as well as the bigger parts. This idea also is very plausible. So far nothing they are saying sends up a red flag. All of these are plausible things. Denise, his wife, had really avoided any type of media attention during the search for her husband and just kind of accepted that Mike was gone and that he had to have died, that he had drowned. She was not one of those people who was like, that can't be, you know, if there's no body, I don't believe it. Denise was on board. You know, she, she took it very stoically. You know, they told her that they thought most likely he was gone and she was, she arranged for a memorial service for Mike to be held the day after the search ended. So that would have been early February. In June, an angler in Stumpfield area, which is where they found the boat, discovered a pair of waders floating in the lake, and the divers called to search the area and then removed from the lake bottom a lightweight hunting jacket and a flashlight. In one of those jacket pockets, there was a hunting license with Williams's name and signature. However, there were no teeth marks or any damage on the waders. None of the recovered items showed signs of being in the water for anything like the period of period of time that Mike Williams had been missing and there was no DNA evidence to found found on the items to link the clothing to him. Uh, nevertheless, a week later, a Leon County judge granted Denise Williams petition to have Mike declared legally dead <coughs> on the basis of those recovered items and the assumption that alligators and other water life had consumed the body in its entirety. We went from having no evidence of Mike's disappearance to all of a sudden having these waders and this flashlight and his hunting license and this jacket. But when something has been in the water for as long as they're saying that one, Mike would have been because this is June and Mike went missing in December, keep this in mind. So if Mike drowned in December and these items were found in June, they should have had some type of wear and tear, right? They should have shown signs of being in the water for six months. Uh, a hunting license, that paper would have been sludgy and watery and very difficult to read if there was anything left. The waders, while plastic, still would have been in the water. They would have picked up foliage, you know, some type of sludge, algae, something from being submerged in water in the lake bed for all of that time before being knocked loose because the argument here would be that at some point they would have had to have been submerged somewhere and then shook loose or floated to the top in order for them to be recovered after six months and they did not show any real wear or signs that they had been in the water that long but Despite this, a judge decided that it was enough evidence to grant Denise her petition to have her husband declared legally dead. I found this point to be completely ridiculous and but interesting, right? Because as I said before, Denise was very 
not okay, but just very agreeable in the fact that Mike was dead. She accepted it. She moved on. And so she was very ready to go cash in whatever money. And she was very quick to have him declared legally dead. Most people, for those of you who don't know, if you are petitioning to have someone declared legally dead, typical waiting period for that is five to seven years, depending on where you are, jurisdiction, whatnot. But typically, it's about five to seven years before you can have someone declared legally dead if you don't have a body or they've gone missing or you can't find them for state purposes. So for her to do this after six months struck a lot of people um, as extremely strange, uh, Mike's mother included. But the court decision allowed Denise to immediately proceed with claims on her husband's life insurance policies, policies from which she received $1.5 million. Five years later, she married Brian Winchester, who had sold Mike some of the policies that she collected on a few months before he disappeared. The couple went to live in the same house where Denise and Mike had lived prior. Denise and Brian had mostly declined to discuss the case publicly. Back to what I was telling you about Denise and Brian and Mike and Brian's wife. Uh, so Brian's wife got a divorced Brian Winchester. And the reason for that is because Denise and Brian were having an affair. Very often would sneak off and have an affair when they said that they were meeting or having work meetings. When they were together on these couples trips, they would take time away to steal kisses and hold hands. They had been at this for quite some time prior to remarrying each other. And to the outside, it very much looked like this were two people that were brought together by the loss of a husband and a childhood friend who had been best friends until the day he died. And Brian looked to be very shooken up and upset um, and initially was part of the search when Denise's father and he went out to look for Mike when Denise first said that he was missing while thought it was interesting that they got married just thought that it was you know two people that were brought together by a very traumatic event mike's mother was not going for any of that she did not believe that he was dead and she certainly did believe didn't believe that if he was dead that alligators and turtles had feasted on his remains to the point that there was absolutely nothing left to recover um, and you might ask yourself what one does when you don't believe what the police are telling you regarding the murder of your child. And that is what we will get into right after this. Mike's mother took it upon herself that what the police were telling her and what the wildlife were wildlife commission was telling her absolutely made no sense in her mind as people that were avid hunters, you know, who had, you know, grown up in this type of life she was adamant that that absolutely was not the case and she did not believe that alligators had eaten her son so she hires a private investigator and a private search team even if an alligator had defied all known alligator behaviors and eaten williams's body in this time period another investigator ronnie austin with the state's attorney's office put it it would have likely left something behind Mike Williams was about 5 feet 10 inches tall and about 170 pounds. So Mataresco, our local alligator expert, considers any theory that attributes the missing body to alligators and other aquatic animals, quote, a stretch. It would be very, very unusual to have the complete disappearance of a full-grown man. 
basically meaning that even if if a you know if multiple alligators had fed on the remains there would have been something left they would have eaten what they wanted and then once they'd gotten to the parts that they weren't interested in like his bones or skull or you know those types of things there should have been something left for divers to recover and that just wasn't the case investigators suspicions were further raised by the waiter's condition which we talked about undamaged without any tooth marks and lacking any of the residues that would be expected to accumulate on an object submerged in the lake for as long as the waiters had supposedly been arnett filtered the water in them after they were recovered and did not find any human remains the hunting jacket and flashlight were likewise in much better condition than inspected, with the latter even working when turned on. That would be the flashlight, of course. I don't know about you, but I would love to find a flashlight that could be submerged in water for six months, and then you pull it out and it still works. I would be interested in having several of those, so if someone would like to make that and put that on the market, would love to have it. Um, so apart from the conditions that the waiters were in, the question of why Williams would be wearing them when he supposedly fell out of the boat was also brought up. According to a friend who hunted with Williams frequently, including one week before his disappearance, Williams took safety very seriously, keeping his guns at work away from his daughter, among other precautions. And on the water, he never put his waders on until he reached the point where he planned to get out and start hunting, following a common safety procedure in order to avoid the type of accident from which he was later believed to have died. Quote, as much as he preached to me, the friend said, why would he be wearing his waders while driving the boat? End quote. Which, again, something I pointed out to you when you are using waders to go, you know, hunting or fly fishing or whatever, you don't put them on and then hop down into the water. You wait till you're where you're going to be, you know the area, and then you put the waders on. So it'd be very odd for someone to fall over with their waders and their jacket because it was a chilly day. So, you know, that would be, would be difficult. Um 2006 the state attorney's office said that they that their gut feeling is that mike is not did not die in lake seminole and he added that the belief was shared by all the investigators at this point he would say i would say this is a suspicious missing persons case however the new investigation may was made extremely difficult by the deficiencies in the original search in which criminal activity had not been considered they did not protect the crime scene at all, recalled a Williams family friend with law enforcement experience who attended the drum fire during the search. They botched it. By the time investigators began to realize they should have asked more questions, the opportunity was gone. Williams's Bronco and the boat had been returned to his family and friends. The footsteps of many volunteers and searchers all over the lakeshore had made it impossible to collect any evidence from that area, and the items later, later recovered from the lake had not been retained. So without any of that evidence or William's body, it was impossible for police to make a case. We're a brick wall pounding our heads again, said Austin. Derek Wester, an investigator with the Jackson County Sheriff's Office, agreed that they were trying to make up for not having considered the possibilities that things might not have been what they seemed in 2000. His office kept the case open and had some persons of interest, although he did not identify them at the time. Fast forward to 2007. Seven years after Mike's disappearance, the FDLE closed the case, convinced that the alligator theory was wrong, but without any leads or evidence that could allow that would allow them to further investigate, the case had to be closed. 
By 2006, the cold case investigators were no longer returning Cheryl Williams' phone calls. She continued to do what she could to publicize the case, taking out ads in the Tallahassee Democrat. A possible new lead emerged in October of 2007 when Michael Williams' older brother found a photograph and the serial number of the 22 caliber Ruger pistol that had once belonged to their father. Michael had inherited the pistol after their father's death, and after Michael was declared legally dead, it was one of the only firearms that Denise Williams had not returned to her former in-laws. After the Jackson County Sheriff's Investigator Wester asked the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms to look for it, agents visited Denise and Brian Winchester, now married, in their house to interview them. Several days later, their attorney delivered the gun to the FDLE. It was sent to a state forensics laboratory for DNA testing, and the results have never been reported. On the anniversary of Williams' disappearance that year, the Winchesters made one of their very few public statements on the case. Quote, for seven years, we have prayed and hoped to find out with certainty what happened to Mike. Brian said in an email to the Democrat, and quote, nobody wants Mike found more than we do. Rumors were circulating around Tallahassee that a grand jury had been hearing evidence and would soon start to hand down indictments. In 2008, the Florida Department of Financial Services Division of Insurance Fraud, or DIF, in conjunction with the FDLE, began investing in the case from that angle. Normally under Florida law, the statute of limitations on that crime is five years, meaning it would have expired in 2005, but it can be extended by three years for certain circumstances. The circumstances surrounding this case raise many serious and troubling questions, said DIF's lead lead attorney, Mark Schlein. Perry, the FFWCC officer who had been heavily involved in the original search, added at the time that if he and, and any other person investigating had known that there was a large life insurance policy on Williams and who the beneficiary was, that search might have been handled differently. It was noted that Denise Williams' court petition to have her husband declared legally dead mentioned only the Kansas City Life Insurance Company policies Winchester had sold them, emitting policies through other companies that Michael Williams had obtained through other sources. However, Brian Jones, an expert in insurance law in Florida State University, told the Democrat that any fraud case would have to rest on more than those facts and already known to have roused investigative interests. The mere fact that they can't locate the body isn't necessarily something the insurance industry would care about, he said. But if Michael Williams was proven to be dead and the beneficiary were shown to have been involved, or if he was still alive, as his mother and many residents of Jackson County believe possible, then the insurance company would strongly consider pursuing a case. By the eighth anniversary of Williams' disappearance, however, DIF had closed their case as well. Our job is extremely difficult and we are simply unable to develop enough evidence to proceed with an investigation, Schlein said. He added that if new information were received, the investigation would be reopened. Quote, we have suspicions, but what we need is evidence. Quote. Another possible lead that year proved fruitless as well. Carrie Cox, a self-described psychic, certified forensic psychological profiler from Kentucky, reviewed the case and had identified a possible location of William's body. She gave investigators the coordinates near a new, a different boat launch, and cadaver dogs were dispatched to the area and sniffed but found nothing. Cox never, nevertheless concluded that we are, quote, moving in the right direction, and I think something is there. 
FDLE officials said in 2011 that Cox had not found anything requiring. By this point in 2011, Cheryl Williams had become disillusioned with the FDLE and believed that they were incompetent and uninterested in the case. In particular, she became to believe the investigation was hampered by the involvement of Agent Mike Phillips, a friend of both her son and his then wife. Phillips had told her early on in the search that Michael had probably been eaten by alligators, so she assumed that he had been involved in the investigation at some point. He said later that he was merely trying to comfort her. Starting in 2012, on New Year's Day, Cheryl began writing one letter a day to Governor Rick Scott asking him to either have another agency besides the FDLE investigate or appoint a special prosecutor to do so. After she had written over 200 letters without even an acknowledgement that they had been received, she began inquiring personally as to why. It turned out that the governor's office had forwarded them unopened to FDLE headquarters where they were placed in the case file. She was outraged. They could not have hurt me more if they had punched me in the face. End quote. I cannot imagine what it is like to write 200 letters begging for help with a case where you know your son is either missing or dead and not having any closure and have them go unopened and unanswered and unacknowledged as if you hadn't written them at all. In the same year in 2012, Denise and Brian, Ch Brian Winchester separated reportedly due to Brian's sex addiction. She filed for divorce in 2015. At this point, we are 15 years since Mike's disappearance. Brian opposed initially to it and had to be ordered to comply with the divorce. As part of that order, he was to provide an appraisal of the couple's house, and that was due in early August of 2016. Denise told Leon County Sheriff's Office investigators that on August 5th, the day when the appraisal had been filed with the court, she left her home to drive to her, to her job at Florida State University. While she was talking on her phone to the sister, she saw to her sister, she saw someone climb over the back seat of her car. It turned out to be her estranged husband, Brian Winchester. He took her phone away and began yelling instructions at her. She did not comply until he showed her a gun. She later said that he claimed this is necessary because she was not taking his calls and blocking his text message. Instead of going where he wanted her to, she pulled into a CVS drugstore parking lot close to the door. Brian told her that he was planning to kill himself. He did not want the divorce and felt that he had nothing to live for if it went through. He assured her he did not want to kill her. She was able to calm him down and took him back to where he had parked his own truck at a nearby park. Before he went to it, he took a tan sheet, a different colored plastic sheet, a spray bottle of bleach, and a tool that looks like maybe a crowbar or hammer from the back of Denise's car. After she left, Brian pulled up to her and apologized for his actions. And despite her promise to not tell the police about the incident, she drove straight to the police office, to the police headquarters to tell them what happened afterwards. According to a friend of Winchester's later who was later interviewed by the police, he had been increasingly concerned that the result of the divorce, Denise would tell the police what she knew about this guy who died 10 or 12 or 15 years ago. She had not answered his many phone calls, so he came up with a plan to wait in her car and hold her at gunpoint. Brian was arrested and charged with kidnapping, domestic assault, armed burglary, and with two charges, and two of those charges were felonies. 
Denise requested a protection order saying that she feared for her life and her daughters and a hearing the next week in which she could neither hear nor eat nor sleep since the incident, the court decided to hold Brian without bond. Cheryl Williams expressed hope that this development could lead to the resolution of her son's disappearance. Quote, she said, Brian's not going to let Denise run around alone with all that money. I'm praying he doesn't commit suicide. I'm praying he'll tell us what actually happened. She added that she is alone among her family and holding out hope that her son is still alive. In 2017, Winchester was sentenced to 20 years in prison for the kidnapping with credit for 502 days time served to be followed by 15 years probation. His attorney told the court that he was suicidal that day due to not only the divorce, but to his mother's recent terminal cancer diagnosis and the decision by his teenage son from his first marriage to move in with his mother and argued for the 10-year mandatory minimum. Prosecutors countered that Winchester's action that day indicated a plan for a murder-suicide that was only averted by Denise's quick thinking and asked the court for the 45-year maximum. Winchester is now imprisoned in the Wakalula Correctional Institution. No mention was made of the Williams case at the Brian Winchester sentencing, although the darn attorney state Jack State Attorney Jack Campbell told the media that he hoped the case against Winchester would help authorities solve the disappearance. Later, it was reported that he reached an agreement with prosecutors before sentencing that they would neither seek a life sentence or kidnapping charge, nor introduce certain evidence at the hearing. What that agreement required of Winchester, if anything, beyond his guilty plea has not been disclosed. The next day at a news conference, Mark Perez, the FDLE special agent in charge, announced and assembled reporters that Williams' body had been refound and it had been determined that he was a victim of a homicide. However, they declined to release any details of how he had been killed and who might have been a suspect or person of interest or where the body had been found, and they said they were withholding that information since the perpetrators would be expected to know it. Subsequently, the FDLE revealed that they had found Mike Williams' remains at the end of a dead-end Gardner Road in northern Leon County, five miles from where he grew up. They were confirmed as his, as his remains following a match to DNA from his mother's DNA. On May 8, 2018, Denise Williams was arrested at Florida State University as she left work to celebrate her daughter's 19th birthday, minutes after a grand jury had indicted her on charges of first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and accessory after the fact. Prosecutors continued to keep the details of the crime to themselves, saying that they would share them in court when the time came. They did say that they would seek to have Denise's denied bail. Denise's attorney declined to comment at the time, saying that he had not had time to review the case. And Denise's estranged husband, Brian Winchester, was serving his sentence in Wakula Correctional Institution. However, his attorney said his client would take the stand if trial, if legally compelled to do so. However, the attorney did not think Winchester would be charged in the case as well. After Denise's arrest, a three-page indictment was released two days later. It revealed that prosecutors believed that Denise allegedly began conspiring with Brian Winchester as early as March 2000, nine months before her husband disappeared and Winchester is alleged to have killed Michael. The accessory charge suggested that sometime between August 2014 and the day that Brian Winchester was sentenced, Denise had allegedly helped Winchester avoid prosecution or arrest for the crime. In late June 2018, Denise Williams was ordered held without bond, and the trial date was set for September 24th. Audio of Brian Winchester's interview with the FDLE was played in court. In it, Brian confessed to killing 
Michael, but claims that the killing was Denise's idea. Her defense argued that the tape should not be have been, should not have been admitted as evidence since Winchester had not been charged with anything despite his admission. The prosecution said it simply asked him to tell the truth about what happened. The state's star witness was Brian, who testified at length about he and how he and Denise had never really ended their high school relationship, even after they had both married others. Kathy Thomas, Winchester's first wife, told the jury that she had suspected the two of having an affair in the late 1990s when they frequently double dated with Mike and Denise. Brian said in his confession, quote, that the affair had started in 1997 and had just snowballed. After discreetly rekindling the relationship, the two began to consider killing Mike so that they could get married, as Denise's family frowned on divorce for religious reasons. Denise suggested staging a boating accident on the Gulf of Mexico where they could throw both Mike and Kathy Thomas overboard, but Winchester did not want to kill his children's mother. After rejecting the plans for a murder at Mike's office meant to look like a robbery, Winchester hit on the idea of an apparent hunting accident after he saved Mike from quicksand when the two were hunting in Arkansas. On the day Mike disappeared, Winchester said, he had enticed him to Lake Seminole. Out on the water, he had gotten Mike to put the waders on and then pushed him out of the boat thinking he would be unable to resurface and thus would drown. But instead, Mike managed to swim over to a tree stump. So Winchester fired a single shotgun blast to his face. Since Mike's death could no longer be passed off as a boating accident, Winchester buried the body where it was later found and then cleaned out his truck and went to a family Christmas party where he learned that a search was underway. He and Denise took it slow after Mike's accident, both to let the insurance money earn further interest and to allow any suspicion. The kidnapping that had led to his present imprisonment, he explained, was his reaction to fear that Denise would reveal the truth about what had happened to her first husband now that she and Brian were divorcing. Prosecutors also played a taped confession or taped conversation in which Kathy Thomas, Winchester's first wife, who was working with police at the time, had told Denise that she knew the truth about the crime. And each time she brought it up, Denise attempted to change the subject, but at one point asked, what do you know? The assistant state attorney, John Fuchs, said this evasiveness, as well as Denise's dispassionate response when Winchester told her how he had killed Mike, demonstrated how cold-bloodedly she had helped plan the crime that happened on her behalf. Way argued in response that there was no physical evidence linking Denise to the crime and that it had been entirely Winchester's idea. He inspired he expressed incredulity that Winchester was not on trial despite having admitted to committing the crime himself. And after four days of testimony, the jury took eight hours to convince Den to convict Denise of all of the charges. Way said his client would appeal the conviction. On February, in February of 2019, 19 years after Mike's death, Denise was sentenced to life in prison. She did not speak or offer any argument on her behalf. The only person to address the court besides the lawyers was Cheryl Williams, Mike's mother, who said that justice had finally been served and that Denise had not only taken her, only taken her son from her, but also her granddaughter. Five months later, Mike and Denise's daughter, Ansley, was awarded all assets of her late father's estate and insurance monies due to Denise after her mother signed them over to her to avoid prosecution on three counts of insurance fraud. 
As part of the deal, Ansley may not use any of the money on her mother's legal fees. If she did, she would owe the state a $150,000 penalty. Denise is now in prison in the Florida Women's Reception Center. In January of 2020, Denise Williams appealed her conviction in life sentence. Her attorney argued before the Florida First District Court of Appeals that there was no evidence involved that she was involved in the commission of a murder. In, in November of 2020, the murder conviction was overturned, but the conspiracy to commit murder conviction was upheld, including the 30-year sentence that accompanied it. And that is the story of the disappearance and ultimately murder of Mike Williams. Some things to note about this. Denise and Brian planned this murder and almost got away with it, um, except for Brian kind of wigging out on her at the end and being scared that she was going to ride him out after the divorce. But I really don't know why he would have thought that she would have incriminated herself just to incriminate him, right? They, but they both would have ended up in jail, which is exactly what happened. The other point that I will point out um, that I did not bring up uh, in my notes and I meant to do so is that the reason that Mike was, uh, sorry, the reason that Brian was not prosecuted for the murder charge is because state attorney's office really wanted to get Denise on charges. And so in order to do that, because Brian was already going to be in jail for what, essentially amounts to the rest of his life and they really wanted to get Denise on these murder and conspiracy charges the only way to do so was to have direct testimony from him so basically in exchange for his testimony they agreed not to prosecute him on the murder charges um and because he was already going to jail it really didn't make much of a difference I guess in their eyes it wasn't going to make his sentence any longer he was already going to be in jail for quite a bit of time um so when he does get out he it he will be an old man and but uh you have to keep in mind that he may never ever make it to parole and the other part is simply the assumption that they wanted everybody involved to pay for their crimes so they were willing to not charge him for the murder if it meant getting denise also essentially 19 years to bring this man's killer to justice and they were able to his mother was able to finally get his remains and bury them and let him have a proper funeral uh and that just to me speaks leaps and bounds and is a testament to that unconditional love that we can get from family members and parents that truly love us and i i cannot imagine what it feels like to know that you have a family member who is missing and they may be dead but not have a place to go see them not have a headstone not have a place to go visit and for a lot of us you know whether you are just spiritual or you are agnostic a lot of us have different beliefs regarding death and what that looks like and, and how we mourn the people that we have lost but for his mother it was very important for her to just if nothing else have the truth to know exactly what happened to mike and she could not rest until she did. And it is crazy to me when you think about it, that this grown man who went missing in 2000, by the time his mom and family got any, any justice for what had happened to him, like, I can't imagine that she, she was there, but she had to be at least 80 years old at this point, probably in her heart knew that he was dead. She held out hope that if he was alive, 
she would find out what happened that somehow some way she would be able to bring whatever of him was left whether he be alive or dead home and that's what she got to do i just wanted to say thank you for sticking with me rocking i obviously have a bit of a sinus thing going on so so sorry if i sound crazy uh i wanted to get this episode out this week because you are listening to this on friday and that would be january 6th and yet tomorrow january 7th is my birthday so this is my return to the show after a long holiday and my birthday episode as well. Uh, so I want to thank you all for listening. Thank you for all your kind words, for checking on me, asking about me. I hope you all had fantastic holidays and happy, happy new years. Um, and of course, we will be back next week to talk about uh, some different cases. And I have some very special guests coming up for you uh, next and of course, you can find me, V, um, on Twitter and Instagram. It's at VJ underscore Burton. If you want to email the show, that's murdervpod at gmail.com. And as well as on Twitter, we are, and on Instagram, it is at murdervpod. You can catch me there when you want to know about new show ideas or if you want to talk to me about any previous cases or make any suggestion for cases that you would like me to cover. I'd love to talk to you. Um, you can tell me what you do, what you do like, what you don't like. You can tell me if you'd like to be a guest on the show. That also works too. I love having people on. Uh, so again, thank you for listening. And this has been Murder V Wrote. I am your host, V. Mm-hmm.